Make plans to join us April 1st through 3rd for the 2019 Gospel Coalition National Conference. Conversations with Jesus. Listeners to Word of the Week can receive $40 off registration by entering the discount code PODCAST at checkout. Register today at thegospelcoalition.org slash TGC19. Let me give you the story of your life in one sentence. For from him and through him and to him are all things. This is TGC's Word of the Week, a sermon podcast from the Gospel Coalition. This week's sermon, God Knows What He's Doing, was preached by H.B. Charles Jr. at Shiloh Metropolitan Baptist Church in Jacksonville, Florida, on New Year's Day in 2012. The text is Romans chapter 11, verses 33 to 36. Listen now to H.B. Charles Jr. God knows what he's doing. God knows what he's doing. There is a pattern in the New Testament epistles of Paul. He begins by teaching doctrine and then exhorts to duty. This pattern reminds us that doctrine and duty go together in the Christian life. This pattern reminds us in the scriptures that Christianity is not religious activism disconnected from doctrinal truth. At the same time, it is not intellectual assent disconnected from personal devotion. True Christianity marries doctrine and duty. Followers of Jesus Christ must both think and act biblically. We must avoid undevotional theology and untheological devotion. And so Paul wisely begins his letters by laying a doctrinal foundation. And then he builds on it a call to live out the life of the teachings of our faith. This is what we find in the book of Romans. Romans chapter 11, verses 33 through 36 is the bridge between these two major sections of the letter. After explaining the doctrine of justification by faith alone and before exhorting his readers to present their lives as sacrifices before God, Paul pauses here to write this doxology in praise to God. This Doxology rebukes our overemphasis on practical Christianity. For too many of us, the most important question about faith is does it work? We view the faith merely in pragmatic terms, but Paul is not hasty to make faith practical. Before he shows us how to walk in the truth of the gospel, he first 
pauses to dance to that truth. And herein we are reminded that Christian doctrine both begins and ends with doxology. R. Kent Hughes comments here that our study of God and his ways among us must turn our hearts to music. This is what we find here with the Apostle Paul. He has climbed up the summit of truth as high as he can go, and yet there is still a long way to go. And even though he cannot go any further, he decides instead to prostrate himself in worship of the incomprehensibility of God. Before he shifts from doctrine to duty, he pauses to rejoice in the fact that God knows what he's doing even when we don't. William Caring struggled with various obstacles in his determination to take the gospel to India. He finally was able to board a ship to Oxford into Asia. But before they lifted anchor, the captain kicked him off the ship, having received an anonymous letter against William Carey. Carey soon after wrote a letter to his friend, Andrew Fuller, in which he said, All I can say about this matter is that however mysterious the leadings of providence are, I have no doubt but that they are superintended by an infinitely wise God. This is the God-centered perspective on life and ministry that I pray you leave here with at the end of this week. Without a doubt, brothers and sisters, there are times when the leadings of providence are mysterious. It is when life does not make sense. It is when you are forced to live with unanswered questions. It is when you don't know what God is doing in your life and ministry. But in those times... Know that God is still worthy to be praised because God knows what he's doing even when we don't. How should we respond to the fact that God knows what he's doing? First, the text says, celebrate the wonder of God's greatness. The text says in verse number 33, all the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. This statement is loaded with theologically significant words, but maybe the most important word in that statement is the first. Oh. It is the cry or groan or sigh of an enraptured heart. Here, at the end of Romans 11, Paul's mind is empty, but his heart is full. And he just cries out in spiritual ecstasy. 
as he considers the fact that God is too deep for you to figure out. And God is too high for you to figure out. See it in the text. First, God is too deep for you to figure out. Paul says, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. The governing thought of this statement is that God is deep. The truth of God is shallow enough that children can come and get a drink without the fear of drowning. Yet it is so deep that scholars can dive in and never touch the bottom. God is deep. The the, the, the further you go out into the ocean, the darker the water gets. And there is a pressured field depth where no human can survive. Paul says that's where God hangs out. God is deep. Are you in here with me tonight? First, he says God's Riches are deep. What does it mean to be rich? It means to be independent, self-sufficient, and without need. By this standard, no one is rich. The wealthiest person is still dependent upon other people in countless ways. Ultimately, only God is rich. Recently, some of the wealthiest men in the world have made a pact to give away half of their wealth before they die. That would be impressive until you consider that all of God's riches are used for the benefit of others. Just notice right in this letter, Romans chapter 2 verse 4 says, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? And then in Romans chapter 9, beginning at verse 22, Paul says, What if God? Desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy. And then drop down to Romans chapter 10. Verses 12 and 13 where Paul says, For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call upon him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. There is no reason to live in sin, guilt, fear, doubt, and worry. Our God is a rich God. Philippians chapter 4 verse 19 says, And my God shall supply all of your needs according to his riches in glory. God's riches are deep, but then God's wisdom is deep. It is best to understand the wisdom of God in relationship to his knowledge. Knowledge is what you know. Wisdom is what you do with what you know. Uh, In Scripture, Wisdom is spiritual, not intellectual. It is moral goodness. It is to perform, it is to pursue the right end through the proper means. 
question is, how does one become wise? James 1 and 5 says, if anyone lacks wisdom, just let him ask God for it, and God will give it to you generously and will not chastise you for asking God is the source of wisdom. And he always pursues the proper end through the proper means. Won't proof? Run to the cross and look at Jesus. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that the Jews look for a sign. And the Greeks are studying after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Greeks. But to those who are being saved, be they Jew or Greek, it is Jesus Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is greater than the wisdom of man. And the weakness of God is greater than the power of men. God's wisdom is deep. But then notice as well, God's knowledge is D. June 17, 1972, five men were arrested for breaking into the Democratic National Committee headquarters at the Watergate office complex in Washington, D.C. This resulted in the resignation of President Richard Nixon, the first and only time the presidency has been resigned. But this second-rate burglary became a national scandal only as the result of persistent investigators who kept raising two questions that the White House didn't want to answer. Here they are. What did the president know? And when did he know it? Let's ask those questions of God tonight. What does God know? Answer. God is omniscient. God knows everything. There is nothing that God does not know. God knows everything known, unknown, and knowable. God knows everything past, present, and future. God knows everything actual, potential, and theoretical. God knows everything in heaven, on earth, and even in hell. There's nothing God does not know. That didn't move you? Let me ask another question. When did God know what he knows? Glad you asked. God's perfect knowledge is eternal. God has always known what God knows. In eternity past, God knew all things. And when this hiccup of eternity called time is over, God will not know anything in eternity future that he didn't know in eternity past. I'm just trying to tell you, God is a deep God. His riches are deep. His wisdom are deep. His knowledge is deep. He's too deep for you to figure out. But at the same time, God is too high. For you to figure out. Still in verse number 33, Paul makes it clear that the God who is infinitely deep is also transcendently high. Isaiah says it this way, for my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are my ways your ways, says the Lord. For as high 
As the heavens are above the earth, so are my thoughts above your thoughts and my ways above your ways. God is too high for you to figure out. Notice how Paul says it. Two statements he makes to affirm this. First, he says, how unsearchable are his judgments. God's judgments are unsearchable. The word here, judgments, refers to the decrees and declarations of God. It is most often used to refer to the condemnation and punishment of sin. But here, it is used more broadly just to refer to what God decrees and what God declares. And Paul is saying here, when God decides something, it's unsearchable. Thought I'd have a witness there. I'm glad I brought my own. Isaiah 40, verse 28 says, Has thou not known? Has thou not heard? That the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He neither faints nor gets weary. And watch this. There is no searching of his understanding. God's judgments are beyond our understanding. Paul says here in verse 33, his judgments are unsearchable. On one hand, his punitive judgments are unsearchable. You don't know what God is up to when it seems like he's punishing somebody. Remember when Jesus and the boys passed by a man born blind and they assumed that he was afflicted because of some wrongdoing. And Jesus says, no, that's not it. He didn't sin. His parents didn't sin. But he's being afflicted so that he can become a trophy of amazing grace. You, you don't know what God is up to. When it seems like he's punishing someone, he, it looks like punishment, but it may be a setup so that he can bring glory to himself through our lives. God's punitive judgments are unsearchable, but his gracious judgments are unsearchable. You don't know what God is up to when he seems to be punishing somebody, but you don't know what God is up to when he seems to be blessing somebody. His gracious judgments are unsearchable. That is why there is no reason to be jealous when someone else is experiencing the favor of God. And there is no reason to be prideful when you are experiencing the favor of God. God's judgments are unsearchable. But not only that, the verse says his ways are inscrutable. God's Ways are inscrutable. Judgment is decrees. Ways is activity. Uh, ways refers to the path God takes to accomplish his judgment. And he says, when God gets to moving to accomplish his judgments, his ways are inscrutable. Meaning, the word there means you cannot track or trace a footprint. God's ways are unfathomable. God's ways are beyond finding out. Uh, Psalm 77 verse 19 says, You made your ways on the sea and your path on the great waters, but your footprints were unseen. This is our God. God is real. God is alive. God is moving. God knows where he's going. 
God always reaches his destination, but when God moves, he leaves no footprint. When God works, he leaves no fingerprints. When God shows up, he leaves no DNA evidence. His ways are unsearchable. His ways are unfathomable. You don't know what God is up to. Paul says you just need to celebrate. When you don't know what God is up, just celebrate the wonder of God's greatness. But then he says also embrace the truth of God's greatness. Embrace the truth of God's greatness. The, the attributes of God fall into two categories. Communicable and incommunicable attributes. Communicable attributes are the attributes of God that we can share being created in his image. For instance, the attributes mentioned in verse 33, wisdom and knowledge are communicable attributes. But incommunicable attributes belong to God alone. Uh, and verses 34 and 35 present to us the incommunicable attributes of God. It does so in a dramatic way. In verses 34 and 35, Paul just boldly declares, God is God and you are not. And do you know what that means? It means, verse 34, God does not need your advice. Verse 35, it means God does not need your assistance. Can I unpack that for a minute? God does not need your advice. Verse 34, who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Answer, no one. No one knows the mind of the Lord. This is a paradox, of course. There is a sense which you can know the mind of the Lord. You can know the mind of the Lord through the word of God. 2 Timothy 3.16 says all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for doctrine and reproof and correction and instruction and righteousness. You can also know the mind of God through the spirit of God. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 2, 14, we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit that is from God, so that we may understand the things that have been freely given us by God. There is a sense in which you can know the mind of God, but ultimately you can't know the mind of God. I'm sensitive about criticizing motives, words, behavior, choices, fair game, but Motives should be off limits. You know, a person can do the right thing for the wrong reason. Or a person can do the wrong thing with good intentions, and you can't tell the difference. You don't know what's in another person's heart and mind. For that matter, you can't fully account for your own motivations. <laughs> Jeremiah 17 verse 9 says that the heart is extremely deceitful. And it is desperately sick and no one can know. You don't know what's going on in your heart, much less what's going on with somebody else. Who then can know the mind of God? Answer no one. Only Jesus Christ knows the mind of God. John chapter 1 verse 18 says, no one has seen God at any time. But the only begotten son who is in the bosom of the father has declared him. Jesus is the exegesis of God. Jesus alone knows the mind of God and reveals him to us. None of us know the mind of God and no one has been his counselor. 
we may ask, act like we can counsel God, but you can't counsel God. Job learned this the hard way, did he not? Uh, by satanic initiation and divine permission, Job suffered more than any human being outside of Jesus Christ. His misguided friends concluded that it was the result of wrongdoing. But the fact of the matter is there was no hidden, unconfessed sin in Job's life. He was suffering not because he had done wrong, but because he had done what was right. He knew this and he wanted to be vindicated. So he, he subpoenaed God for a deposition. And God, wait, God showed up in a whirlwind. And God had his own list of questions. Job wanted to know where was God when, when his life fell apart. God wanted to know from Job, where were you when I created the heavens and the earth? And in Job 42, he says, I repent in dust and ashes because I was talking about what I didn't know about. Nobody has been God's counselor. But notice as well, not only does God not need your advice, God doesn't need your assistance. Who has given a gift to God that he might be repaid? God doesn't need you to help him finance his projects. Who? Who has paid a debt to the Lord that it would need to be repaid? No. Uh, the, Bible, the bottom line of Christian stewardship can be stated in four words. Everything belongs to God. The psalmist said it well. The earth is the Lord's. And the fullness thereof, the world and everyone in it belongs to God. God doesn't need anything. You remember David wanted to build a temple for God? God wouldn't let him do it because he was a bloody man of war. He did allow David's son Solomon to build it and he permitted David to take up the offering. And when the offering was received in 1 Chronicles 29 verse 14, David says, and who am I? And who are my people that we would give so willingly to you? Because all things belong to you. And we've only given you what was already yours. No one has given to God that he would need to be repaid. God does not need your assistance. You need to celebrate the wonder of God's greatness. You should embrace the truth of God's greatness. One more thing and I'll sit down. Affirm the scope of God's greatness. This is verse number 36. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. This is a perfect summary of the Christian worldview. Secular humanism can never make sense of the human experience and our purpose in the world because it doesn't accept the bottom line reality of human beings. It's not about you. What is life all about? Glad you asked. To him be glory forever. For from him and through him and to him are all things. This closing verse says, first of all, 
God is in control of all things. Did you hear that? For from him and to, through him and to him are all things. This is an affirmation of divine sovereignty. Divine sovereignty means God has unimpeachable jurisdiction over everything. To say God is sovereign is just another way of saying God is God. R.C. Sproul has written that if there is one maverick molecule running loose in the universe outside of God's sovereign control, then God is not sovereign. And if God is not sovereign, God is not God. What does it mean for God to be God? Verse 36 says, for from him and through him and to him are all things. Are y'all in here with me? Uh, that statement, just let, me, let me just give you the unfolding of history in one sentence. For from him and through him and to him are all things. Let me give you the way of salvation in one sentence. For from him and through him and to him are all things. Let me give you the story of your life in one sentence. For from him and through him and to him are all things. God is the first cause of all things, the effective cause of all things, and the final cause of all things. God is the source of all things. He is the substance of all things. He is the significance of all things. God is the source of all things, and the course of all things, and the force of all things. God originates, God perpetuates, and when he get ready, God terminates. God is the foundation of all things. God is the being of all things. God is the purpose of all things. God is the alpha and the omega and every letter in between. He is in control of all things. And then he says, God deserves glory at all times. William Barclay, and I'm wrapping up, and his comments on this text ends by saying, if a man can say that all things come from God and have their being in him and are going to him, what is there left to say? He's right. He's right. The exhaustive Sovereignty of God is the end of the argument. If all things are from him and through him and to him, what's left to say? Barclay is right. The fact that God controls all things is the end of the argument. But there is still something left to say to him be glory if all things 
come from him, you ought to give him the glory. If all things are through him, you ought to give him the glory. If all things are going to him, you ought to give him all the glory. I'm through. Y'all, y'all didn't get it. Let me add another word. Because Paul doesn't say you just ought to give him glory when things are going your way. He, he doesn't say just give him glory when the sun is shining. He says, give him glory forever. It means it doesn't matter what you're going through. He's still worthy of the glory. It doesn't matter the burden you are carrying. He's still worthy of the glory. That, that, that's why I, I don't sing that song. When praises go up, blessings come down. That, that, that might not be worship. That might be negotiation. That, 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 that might be I'll scratch your back if you scratch mine. But the fact of the matter is, if another blessing never comes, he's still worthy to be praised. He's worthy because his word is true. He's worthy because his grace is sufficient. He's worthy because his love is real. He's worthy because his power is unlimited. He's worthy because his truth endures to all generations. Is anybody here tonight that know he's worthy of all the glory? Down at the cross where my Savior died. Down where from cleansing from sin I cried. That to my heart was the blood applied. Glory to his name. I am so wondrously saved from sin. Jesus so sweetly abides within there at the cross where he took me in glory I wish I could get it out the way I feel it tonight glory glory is there anybody here that can join me in saying glory to his name I'm sitting down now, but there's one more word in the text that I got to give you before I let you alone. It's amen. I hope you ain't got so sophisticated that all you can do is clap now and you don't know how to open your mouth and say amen. Woo! He's a rock in a weary land. Amen. He's a shelter in the time of storm. Amen. He'll pick you up when you're down. He will turn you around. He will make your enemies leave you alone. He will fight your battle. Amen. Amen. 
You've been listening to TGC's Word of the Week. Check back next week for another gospel-centered sermon. We also invite you to visit the resources section of our website, thegospelcoalition.org, to find thousands of sermons to help you understand and apply God's Word.